Part One, Chapter Three of The Swoop. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes. The Swoop, or How Clarence Saved England, by P. G. Woodhouse. Part One, Chapter Three, England's Peril. When the papers arrived next morning, it was seen that the situation was even worse than had at first been suspected. Not only had the Germans effected a landing in Essex, but in addition, no fewer than eight other hostile armies had, by some remarkable coincidence, hit on that identical moment for launching their long-prepared blow. England was not merely beneath the heel of the invader, it was beneath the heels of nine invaders. There was barely standing room. Full details were given in the press. It seemed that while Germany was landing in Essex, a strong force of Russians, under the Grand Duke Vodkakov, had occupied Yarmouth. Simultaneously the Mad Mullah had captured Portsmouth, while the Swiss Navy had bombarded Lyme Regis, and landed troops immediately to westward of the bathing machines. At precisely the same moment China, at last awakened, had swooped down upon that picturesque little Welsh watering-place, Hlugstplu, and despite desperate resistance on the part of an excursion of Evans's and Jones's from Cardiff, had obtained a secure foothold. While these things were happening in Wales, the army of Monaco had descended on Ochtermuchty, on the Firth of Clyde. Within two minutes of this disaster, by Greenwich time, a boisterous band of young Turks had seized Scarborough, and at Brighton and Margate, respectively, small but determined armies, one of Moroccan brigands under Rasuli, the other of dark-skinned warriors from the distant isle of Baligala, had made good their footing. This was a very serious state of things. Correspondents of the Daily Mail, at the various points of attack, had wired such particulars as they were able. The preliminary parley at Luxpleu, between Prince Ping-Pong Pang, the Chinese general, and Llewellyn Evans, the leader of the Cardiff excursionists, seems to have been impressive to a degree. The former had spoken throughout in pure Chinese, the latter replying in rich Welsh, and the general effect, wired the correspondent, was almost painfully exhilarating. So sudden had been the attacks, that in very few instances was there any real resistance— the nearest approach to it appears to have been seen at Margate. At the time of the arrival of the black warriors, which, like the other onslaughts, took place between one and two o'clock on the afternoon of August Bank Holiday, the sands were covered with happy revellers. When the war-canoes approached the beach, the excursionists seemed to have mistaken their occupants at first for a troop of nigger minstrels on an unusually magnificent scale, and it was freely noised abroad in the crowd that they were being presented by Charles Froman, who was endeavouring to revive the ancient glories of the Christie minstrels. Too soon, however, it was perceived that these were no harmless Moor and Burgesses. Suspicion was aroused by the absence of banjos and tambourines, and when the foremost of the negroes dexterously scalped a small boy, suspicion became certainty. In this crisis the trippers of Margate behaved well. The mounted infantry on donkeys, headed by Uncle Bones, 
did much execution. The ladies' tormentor brigade harassed the enemy's flank, and a hastily formed band of sharpshooters, armed with three shies a penny balls and milk cocos, undoubtedly troubled the advanced guard considerably. But superior force told. After half an hour's fighting, the excursionists fled, leaving the beach to the foe. At Ochtermuchti and Portsmouth no obstacle, apparently, was offered to the invaders. At Brighton the enemy were permitted to land unharmed. Scarborough, taken utterly aback by the boyish vigour of the young Turks, was an easy prey. And at Yarmouth, though the Grand Duke received a nasty slap in the face from a dexterously thrown bloater, the resistance appears to have been equally futile. By tea-time on August the 1st, Nine strongly equipped forces were firmly established on British soil. End of Part 1 Chapter 3